will be our main text, 1 John chapter 5. Welcome to our monthly Q&A night. I just have one question this evening, and uh, so let's jump into it. It's an easy enough question to uh, summarize. Can you explain 1 John 5, verses 16 and 17? So let's just begin by reading those, and then we will slowly inch up toward an answer. 1 John 5 and verse 16. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. So, easy enough. Um, here, here's, I think, the, the best way to start it. I think the, way to, uh, the best way to gain insight about any passage is to get in the, uh, the mind of the author and the big picture of what he's up to. So I'm going to spend the first part of it explaining what in the world John is doing in this epistle of 1 John, and then I think it'll become somewhat more clear what this verse is doing here. So let's start with the big picture of 1 John. Um, the book of 1 John was written to a group of Christians who were trying to follow Christ in a time when more and more people were beginning to, let's say, reinterpret Jesus reinterpret who he was and his nature and what he came to do. There were people who claimed to have a new and superior knowledge about Jesus' nature and about Jesus' work, which contradicted the plain teaching of the apostles. It seems that John was dealing with a heresy that later became, in its mature form, came to be known as docetism. Um, We briefly touched on this in my God Talk class, but let me just briefly describe what this is and then show you that I think John is addressing something like this at least. So the word docetism comes from a Greek word, dokeo, which means to seem or to appear to be. The docetists taught taught that Jesus only seemed to be human. He wasn't. He seemed to be, but he wasn't. In reality, he was only ever a divine being and never a human being. The, The disciples thought he was human, they said. The apostles thought they were tricked, but they were and they were mistaken. Now, to understand why they might say that, against all indications of the New Testament, you have to understand the, broad, the larger movement that they're sort of a part of and the bigger worldview that they've swallowed down, sometimes called Gnosticism, is sort of the umbrella under which this stands. One of the core tenets of the Gnostics was that, was that matter and physicality are inherently evil. And so salvation, they think, means a liberation from that physicality, a shedding of the body, an escape from the world, transcending humanity to become a godlike spirit. So if that's your worldview, if that's what you think good is, good is immaterial, bad is material, you can't be having a Messiah with a fully human nature, can you? He's defiled in in that state. And so they taught, along with their worldview, that Christ was and is a purely spiritual, heavenly redeemer who was never really born as a human and never really died and and was never physically raised. He only appeared to do all those things. His humanity was a charade. Uh, There's a saying that goes along with that he was simply God with human skin on, but he wasn't actually human. This view of Jesus was prevalent very early, first couple centuries, and I think it's pretty clear John was aware of these teachings, uh, and he is specifically contradicting them. Just to give you a little sample, 1 John 4 and verse 1 Beloved, 
Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and is now, now is in the world already. So do you see John's warning about those who believe Jesus did not come in the flesh, was not human? John's warning only makes sense if people are going around at the end of the first century saying something like Jesus didn't really come in the flesh. He only seemed to. John says the second they make that claim, the second someone calls into question the full humanity of Jesus, they are announcing themselves as false prophets. They might as well have a sign written on their forehead. I am a false prophet. See also 2 John, just a page over in your Bible, 2 John 7. He's still on this issue in his second uh, epistle. 2 John 7. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. So John has strong words about those who would, have, who would bring such a teaching. So, in this time of uncertainty, where there are growing, differing claims about what is true and what is knowledge, or people saying, I have a new revelation from God, and if you really think Jesus became a human, you don't really understand God or the nature of reality. Into an environment like that, when people are sort of becoming confused and calling into question the fundamentals of the gospel, John wrote a letter about what it means to know God, what it means to know Jesus, and what it means to walk in the light. Now, that includes, first, a sound understanding about the true nature of Jesus, of course. But John goes and, and, and makes a bigger book than that, a bigger epistle than that. For John, this question of Jesus' nature isn't just a nerdy doctrinal question. John knew that bad doctrine makes bad disciples. And good doctrine is supposed to find its expression in genuine expressions of obedience to God and in genuine love for our brethren. Good doctrine is meant to find its expression in those avenues. And so what he is up to in this epistle is to help his readers discern whether or not they are walking in the light, and if they are, to give them confidence in their walk. And so the way I kind of sum it up is John gives three tests to the reader. Um, just as a side note, I always find John quite difficult to read, more difficult than Paul or some of the Gospels. Um, he's not always linear, uh, A point A, point B, point B, point C. He kind of circles around. He'll make a point here, and he'll circle to something else, circle to something else. So the way I understand John is he has about three big ideas and he'll circle and intermix them one after the other. But here's how I summarize it. John gives disciples three tests. You want to know if you're walking in the light? And if you are walking in the light, you want to know what to hang your hat on? Number one, there is a moral test. The moral test is simply this. Do I obey God? Am I doing the commandments? If you are, that's good. You should feel good about that. The second, the second test is the social test. And, and the question is simply this. Do I love my brother? And if you are, you're doing well. And then third is the doctrinal test, which is, do I confess about Jesus what he confessed about himself? Do I confess Jesus really was fully human and fully divine, that he came in the flesh and that he died as a human for our sins, that he was raised in his body three days later? You confess that, you're doing well. John wants us to, to understand these three tests are not in competition with one another. We don't have to choose which one of those three things to emphasize over the others. We must not simply pick out the, ones that come, the one that comes most naturally to me and harp on that one and be self-righteous about how well I'm doing on that test. So there will be someone that's kind of a Bible theology nerd, and they'll like to get in the ins and outs of the doctrinal question. And so they will emphasize that. Well, John would say, 
Are you busy loving your brethren? Because that's just as important. There's someone else who has a huge heart for their brethren. And they say, oh, that doctrinal stuff, I don't need that. That doesn't have any relevance to my life. And John would say, no, it does have relevance. That's why you're doing the loving of your brethren. And so all three areas need to be attended to in the disciples' life. They all come together and work as one in harmony. So we're inching up. Let's come to chapter 5. This is the beginning of chapter 5. And what John, I think, begins to do in chapter 5 is blending together all three of these ideas. Our doctrine, our obedience to God, and our love for our brethren. This is chapter 5 and verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So he starts and ends in verses 1 and 5 with the truth about Jesus. Do you see these doctrinal affirmations? Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Son of God in verse 5. But then sandwiched in between those core convictions, those core doctrines, is what those doctrines bear out in our lives. That at the end of verse 1, that we love everyone who has been born of him, we love his brethren. In verse 2, that we obey his commandments. That's how those doctrines find expressions in our lives. Each part of our discipleship feeds off the other. Moral, social, doctrinal. We obey God, we love our brethren, and we have a faith that is centered on the true affirmations about Jesus. So... We come to verse 13. John begins to wrap up his letter. And as he does, he states some of the core purposes of his letter, which is to reassure his readers about their possession of eternal life. And then he explains what that means as far as prayer is concerned. So this is verse 13. John, 1 John 5 and verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know you have eternal life. And this is the confidence we have towards him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. So in verse 13, John basically tells us why he wrote this whole letter. And this is actually very characteristic of John's writing. Um, Near the end of both the Gospel of John and the first epistle of John, he has nearly identical statements and then slightly altered where he says here's who I'm writing to and here's why I'm writing. First John really should be read as sort of a sequel to the gospel of John. So listen to John's purpose statement of his gospel. It's a famous verse. He says in John 20 and verse 31, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John is written basically to unbelievers that they may believe and that by believing, they can have eternal life. Compare that to John's purpose statement in 1 John. Verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know you have eternal life. 1 John is written to reassure believers, written to believers to reassure them that they may know they have life. John is written that you may believe and have life. 1 John is written to those who do believe that they may know that they have life. So the Gospel of John is evangelistic. The Epistle of 1 John is pastoral. It's written to, written to Christians to reassure them. So these brethren had been unsettled by false teachers and perhaps were unsure of their own spiritual state. And so John begins writing to them. 
I want to assure you. I want to give you these sort of benchmarks, doctrinal, moral, and social. His purpose all along has been assurance. John then adds that this assurance changes our relationship with God, in particular in verse 14, in the way that we pray. We can pray having this assurance about ourselves and our relationship with God. The confidence we have about our future hope, about our life, changes how we live right here, and in in particular how we pray. And so verse 14, this is the confidence we have towards him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. With real faith comes an understanding that God is anxious to hear us, and he is anxious to give us what we need. Now he qualifies this in verse 14, if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us, which is to say prayer is not a way to impose our will on God, and to force God to bend his will to ours, that's not what we're trying to do in prayer. As one man said, it is by prayer we seek God's will and embrace it and align ourselves with it. And ultimately in prayer, the highest form of prayer is to seek to align ourselves to God, not to ask him to align himself with us. But disciples can approach God confidently, not timidly. That's what he's saying in verses 14 and 15. So 14 and 15 generally are about prayer and the confidence we have God hearing, God answering. Now in verse 16, John shows us a specific kind of prayer we should be involved in, but he also names a limitation to that kind of prayer. Verse 16. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death. And then he says this. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. And then he says in verse 17, All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. So he's been talking about the great assurance disciples have about their eternal life. But what he says in verse verse 16 is that assurance ought not lead us into a preoccupation with ourselves to the neglect of others. And so, you know, the attitude, I've got eternal life, I'm assured of my eternal life, forget everyone else, am I my brother's keeper? If that's where you come out with this, then you've missed the point. We are concerned with the spiritual state of others. And so, in verse 16, if we see our brother committing sin, what will we do? We will ask. And what will happen? God will give him life. So we are concerned with our brethren. We're concerned with our brethren when they're in sin. We want them to have the same life that we ourselves are assured that we have. It doesn't absolve the brother in his sin from his responsibility to confess and repent. John would admit that, and there's plenty of other evidence in this epistle that uh, John thinks that. Basically, in the beginning of verse 16, I think John is basically saying what James says. This is what James says in James 5 and verse 15. The prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and God will raise him up. If he has committed sins, he'll be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power in its working or the prayer of a righteous man avails much. I think John is basically saying the same thing. Our brethren in sin, as that sin is confessed, as that sin is known, we're busy praying for each other and we are helping each other attain and maintain that eternal life. However, second half of verse 16, John also exposes a limitation to that sort of intercessory prayer. He makes a distinction between sin that does not lead to death and sin that leads to death. For those who commit the sin not leading to death, the Christian will pray, and the prayer will give life. But those who commit the sin that leads to death, whatever that is, John says, I do not advise prayer. And then he adds in verse 17, 
all wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. He gives it, adds in this reminder because he doesn't want to be misunderstood. What he's doing in verse 17 is in distinguishing between sin that leads to death and sin that does not lead to death. He says, I'm not minimizing the gravity of sin. All wrongdoing is sin. Look back in chapter 3 and verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. John is very serious about all sin equally. He's simply showing them in 4.17, there is a sin that leads to death, and whatever that is, the prayer he's been talking about will not be effective. But he's saying, by all means, pray for other sinners. Pray for your brethren who stumble. Those prayers will be effective. So that's just kind of the logical flow. Now let's get in there and start exploring how we understand that. So what do we make of this phrase, the sin that leads to death? That's what the question is. What in the world does that mean? What is the sin for which we should not pray? Let's first say there is a sense in which all sin leads to death spiritually. When we talk about the connection between sin and death, it's there, always, in all sin. Therefore, John 5, uh, uh, Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. It's a blanket statement. When we sin, it brings death into our lives, death into the world. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Or James 1.15, desire when it is conceived gives birth to sin, and sin when it is fully grown brings forth death. This is what sin does. It grows up, it expresses itself in our life, and then it kills us, and it kills everything, and it ruins everything. The Bible almost always speaks in, in this blanket way about sin. Uh, one sin will kill you as well as any other, and Jesus came to redeem sin and to save sinners, and he doesn't parse out which sins and which sinners he came for. We don't see him doing that. Paul, the chief of sinners, a blasphemer, a persecutor of Jesus, found forgiveness. But what is John doing then? Making some kind of a distinction between sin that leads to death and sin that does not lead to death. What is that about? So for our last little bit, well, the second to last part of our lesson, I want to lay out three common interpretations of this idea of the sin that leads to death. Three interpretations. One I think is very wrong and two I think are, are very much in play. So the first one would be what I'm going to summarize as mortal sin. Some people say what this is referring to is the idea of mortal sin. There are people who have made distinctions between kinds of sin. Um, this is typically a Catholic distinction, which is there is such thing as a mortal sin, and then there is such thing as a venial sin. This would be sort of the equivalent to uh, a felony. That would be a mortal sin, a really bad sin. Murder would be one of those. And then there would be more misdemeanor sins, like venial that is, some sin is more serious than others. I reject this view pretty quickly, not only because the New Testament does not uphold any such distinction, but Paul pretty much demolishes that whole idea of levels of sin in the, in the first few chapters of Romans, where all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. One sin will kill you as well as any other. Jesus died that all sin might be forgiven as we respond to God's gracious offer. And those categories of moral and venial sins are foreign to the Bible and are simply read back. They're developed at a much later date and then are read back into texts like these. I think those categories would be completely foreign to John. So let's move on to a couple more serious suggestions people have made of what it is the sin leads that leads to death. Some have said what John is thinking about is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. So do you remember when Jesus said this? This is a version from Mark 3 and verse 28. He said, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, 
but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they, the uh, antagonists of Jesus in the story, were saying that Jesus had an unclean spirit. So the Pharisees were guilty of what Jesus called an unforgivable sin, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And what this is, basically, is a deliberate and willful rejection of clear, revealed truth in front of them. They were ascribing the mighty works of Jesus, the signs of Jesus, to Beelzebul. They said Jesus has a demon. He's working these by the power of Satan. And they have every reason in the world, every, every reason in the world to understand Jesus as he reveals himself. And hard-heartedly, high-handedly, they say, no, we will not believe it and we will blaspheme you about it. Now, I've done two whole Q&As about the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And I'm not about to do a, th- a third one right now. Um, go back and find those. The second one was better than the first one, which is probably why the question got asked again. Um, but in my understanding, by calling Jesus something less than what he was, um, in John, what they were doing is they were saying he was only a divine being. He's not a human being. They're denying the true humanity and therefore denying the atoning death of Jesus. How could Jesus die, really die for our sins unless he's fully human? In this interpretation, in doing that, What these false teachers are doing, these docetists are doing, is willfully denying the truth about Jesus when they should have known better. And there's clear revealed truth, and they say, no, we won't believe it. We have this other set of of beliefs that we will not abandon. We'd rather abandon these clear revelations of Jesus and of the apostles. And so in this understanding, they are committing this sin, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. They're showing themselves to be beyond redemption, essentially. So in this case... John is telling his disciples, if they have committed what Jesus called the eternal sin, your prayers won't do much for them. They have have sinned in a way which can only ever lead to death. So that is one big uh, move we could make, and I think that wouldn't do terrible violence to this either. The other possibility would be what we could call apostasy or, or, I think, right alongside it, heresy. So some say the sin that leads to death is not a specific sin, it's not a a, a particular class of sins, but is rather something like apostasy, a a state. Not a particular sin, but sort of just a a state of being. What the people in John have done, these docetists, these false teachers have done, is completely denied Jesus and completely renounced the faith in Jesus and the reinterpretation of him. And that is what he's talking about. That is the sin leads to death, for which we should not pray. And and this understanding fits well with the immediate context um, in John's day, with people who were once brethren swallowing down these Gnostic and Docetist doctrines which contradicted the true gospel and were leading others away. And so in this understanding, John is saying something like this. Pray for your brethren when they stumble in sin. True disciples of Jesus need all the help they can get from the prayers of their brethren. But those who deny the truth about Jesus... Those who lead others astray, those who hear the revelation, hear the clear understanding of the apostles and say, no, we've got this other set of secret knowledge that we know better. People who do that, they do not need the help that prayer can give. Your brethren need it when they stumble, but these people do not need the help that your prayers can give. Disciples who stumble need prayers. Antichrists, undermining the faith of the disciple, do not need your prayers. So... I reject the first explanation outright. It's a category that's foreign to the Bible, this mortal venial distinction. Numbers 2 and 3 both seem plausible to me. And really, I don't even think there's a huge distinction between numbers 2 and 3. 
the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is basically leading toward an apostasy. Basically, John is saying, pray for your brethren to be forgiven their sins. But there are some who have passed, passed the threshold of erring Christian to anti-Christ, that which is set against Christ as much as he could possibly be. There are some who have passed that threshold from erring Christian to anti-Christ. They have passed the point of no return. They are rebelling against God and against Jesus so spectacularly, denying clear revelation so brazenly, embracing Satan so closely, that your prayers cannot save them. If the will of God is against these people, if they are due for judgment, then to pray for their forgiveness, in the language of verse 14, would not be to ask according to God's will. If it is God's will that they be judged, then we will not be busy praying for their forgiveness. We might pray for other things with relation to them. We might pray that that judgment comes more swiftly before they can do more harm. We might pray that they they hit rock bottom and see the error of their ways and repent, but we will not be busy praying for their forgiveness. We will not ask God to help them in their endeavors. I think essentially that's what he's saying. They are committing a sin that is leading them to death and is leading other people to death. Now, let me go to one final text before we are done. This is Jeremiah chapter 7. Turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 7. I think you have to admit it's jarring to read a biblical author instruct his readers not to pray. Do not pray for these people. Do not pray in this circumstance. But I want to end in, in Jeremiah 7 because 1 John isn't the only place in the Bible where that instruction is given. Um, And so I want to spend time thinking about Jeremiah and just sort of wrap our head around this idea and maybe find some applications from putting these two texts together. In Jeremiah 7, God tells his prophet, do not pray for Judah. They'd reached a point where judgment was certain. They were past the point of no return. No amount of your prayers, Jeremiah, will change this. And so this is what he says, Jeremiah 7 and verse 16. Jeremiah 7 and verse 16. As for you... Do not pray for this people, or lift up a cry or prayer for them, and do not intercede with me, for I will not hear you. Do you not see what they are doing in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? The children gather wood, the fathers kindle fire, the women knead dough to make cakes for the queen of heaven. And they pour out drink offerings to other gods to provoke me to anger. Is it I whom they provide? Declares the Lord, Is it not themselves to their own shame? Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, my anger and my wrath will be poured out on this place, upon man and beast, upon the trees of the field and the fruit of the ground. It will burn and not be quenched. God tells Jeremiah, Do not pray for this people or lift up a cry of prayer for them. Do not intercede with them. And he said, Jeremiah, if you decide to pray anyway, he said at the end of verse 16, I will not hear you. He repeats this command, by the way, a couple more times in Jeremiah 11 and Jeremiah 14. And I think God understands what an odd command this would be. So he immediately begins to explain. He tells Jeremiah, look around you, verse 17. Do you not see what they're doing in the cities of Judah, the streets of Jerusalem? And when Jeremiah looked around, what he would have seen was Judah, it didn't just have a few bad apples in it. Their apostasy included every house doing its part, everything it could to worship the pagan gods, every member of every household. And so he described in verse 18, the children gathered the wood, and then the father kindles the fire, and then the mother kneads the dough to cook, bake cakes over that fire for the queen of heaven. This is a reference to the Assyrian goddess Ishtar. 
Sacred rites to her included baking bread in her likeness, basically edible idols, that's what they were making, and then pouring out libations to her too, as verse 18 describes. Verse 19, God says, it's not just that I'm upset. Judah does this to her own shame, and she's too dumb to realize there's no such thing as magic bread. They all do it to their shame. The reason Jeremiah is not to intercede for Judah is because Judah is so deep in her apostasy, so beyond repenting, God says her fate is sealed. God knows how hard their hearts are. He pled and sent prophets to them for centuries and to no avail. And so the only recourse of God left for this people, so eager to worship Ishtar, is for God to pour out his wrath. Or to put it in the poetic language, you're so eager to pour out libations to Ishtar that God says in verse 20, I will pour out my wrath. There's a play on words there. God's will is that Babylon will destroy this people who love their idolatrous bread. And so to pray otherwise at this point, Jeremiah, would be simply to contradict my will. If you need further convincing that Judah was beyond saving, in, the, in chapter 44, after Babylon had destroyed the, uh, the temple and the city, and Judah should have known good and well, what a, what a mess we made, what a mistake we made, we need to repent we have nothing left. After all of that, the straggler Judeans left in the land decide what they need to do. What went wrong here was that we didn't worship the goddess Ishtar hard enough. And they say, let's rededicate ourselves to the goddess Ishtar. That'll restore our fortunes. God was vindicated. There was no hope for that generation. So it's not exactly parallel to 1 John 5. There's different things going on. But it does underline... Prayer is not always appropriate. John says the false teacher leading the church astray doesn't need the assistance that the prayers of the church may give. Unless perhaps we're praying in an imprecatory way and then they would need what our prayers can give them. God tells Jeremiah when a group is clearly under God's judgment, it wouldn't be appropriate to contradict God's judgment with a prayer that he'd do otherwise. God, redeem these people. God, don't judge these people. And God has said, I'm judging these people. So is there a lesson for us in these observations of Jeremiah and John? Well, I think it reminds us that as powerful and as important as prayer is, there is something more powerful and more important than our prayers, and that is the will of God. God invites us to pray and to ask over and over again. We are assured over and over again our prayers make a difference. But there are times when God's plan is obvious. His plan to judge Judah or his plan to judge those who are denying the core facts of the gospel, there are times when God's plan is obvious, when people have made clear that their hearts are hard and irredeemable, and if we are praying that God will forgive the unforgivable, that would not be an appropriate prayer. Now, I do think it would be appropriate to pray other things in those circumstances. It would be appropriate, as the psalmists do, to pray that those on whom God's judgment is coming, or God's judgment needs to come, that we pray that it happens more speedily and that God will carry out his will. That is sometimes called imprecation. I think it would be appropriate that, to pray that a wicked person wake up from their wickedness, that they repent. In the language of Paul, when he describes someone who's um, handed themselves over to, to sin and licentiousness, he says, I pray that they be handed over to Satan, that, that they may learn not to, not to blaspheme, that they sort of experience all the horrible things that sin brings, that they may turn back around. I think that's an appropriate thing to pray. But what John and Jeremiah are both saying is that prayer for God's forgiveness, 
for the condemned. Prayer that God gives someone success. Prayer that God gives someone help and healing in their apostasy, in their rebellion against God, on which God's judgment is coming. If that's your prayer, it's not appropriate when God has already pronounced them condemned. As he says again in verse 14 of, of the First John 5 passage, anything we ask according to his will. It is God's will that will determine. And when God's will is clearly revealed, we ought not pray in a way in which God will do something other than what he said he will do. So as always, um, the, way, the way I feel this goes is I just sort of talk around it and, and ramble on for about 30 minutes and shrug my shoulders and say that's the best I can do. That's how I feel this evening, but I hope that's been helpful to you in, uh, in what is a, 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 an interesting and difficult passage. Maybe there's someone here this evening that needs to come and to seek forgiveness. We will uh, apply some of the verses we just read. John has said, when your brethren sin, come and pray for them. We're invited to do that. We're assured that when we do that, there's power in our prayer. We want to do that for you, whatever your spiritual need, whatever the repentance you need to uh, confess and the help you need. We can, we can do whatever we can to help you right now as we stand and sing. Someday you'll answer the question of life. What will your answer be? What will it be? What will it be? Where will you spend your eternity? What will it be? Oh, what will it be? What will your answer be? Now is the time to prepare, my friend. Make your soul spotless and free. Washed in the blood of the crucified one, he will your answer be. What will it be? What will it be? Where will you spend your eternity? What will it be? Oh, what will it be? What will your